Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and we're here at the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. And we've got people getting orders taken right now. This is all right. <laughs> anyway, but uh, so uh, we just had the waitress come to the table, and we were trying to let her know that we're recording. <laughs> but anyway, it's always great to be with you. And I'm, re- I'm joined, as I am every week, by my friends. So why don't we uh, let them introduce themselves. Uh, Glenn. Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, accompanied by my son, Brendan, who's home visiting for a while. Yeah, great, Hello. Hello. great, to, have you. great to have you, Brendan. Yeah. Tom. Tom, Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both as adjunct professor um, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and in the Boston campus. Great. And I'm C.R. Wiley, the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. And uh, I'm the author of uh, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, among other things. Well, uh, today is my day. It's my day to, to introduce the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is productive property. And what inspired me to talk about this is just over the past uh, few days, I've had a couple of people uh, connect with me uh, through the internet, another with a phone call, on this very subject, that what is productive property. So I thought, well, you know, I've, I've alluded to this subject, uh, I think, a number of times in the, in the podcast, and I thought, well, I don't believe I've ever dedicated like an entire show to the subject, so mm-hmm. why don't we do that? Mm-hmm. So productive property, what is it? And uh, then... Uh, once we talk a little bit about what it what it is, then I think there will be lots of ways that you guys will feel inspired to contribute to the conversation. But what am I talking about when I'm talking about productive property? Well, productive property sometimes is referred to as real property. Uh, but when people think about real property, they generally think about uh, land or they think about commodities like gold or whatever. But productive property, I think, is distinguished by this one feature. This one thing makes productive property distinct from other forms of property. And that is its ability to give you a living. In other words, support you. Now, there are uh, some ways or some examples that make it easy to grasp, this concept easy to grasp. For example, uh, a toothbrush is your property, but it's not productive property. Productive property would be something like perhaps income-producing real estate. Is where we, I, I think that's where a lot of people go when they think about productive property is, is real estate. And now I've been involved with uh, real estate since 1994. I've owned a number of real, uh, you know, rental properties. At one time, I had 18 tenants. I've probably probably had about 80 different renters over you know over the course of my time uh, since 1994 uh, and so I know a lot about that particular subject and that particular form I should say of productive property but you really shouldn't limit uh, productive property to real estate uh, what what you ought to keep in mind when you think about productive property is two things one is productive property is property that uh, requires you to do something to keep it productive. So let's say we're talking about real estate. Uh, real estate does require work. You know, for example, when it comes to the matter of keeping up the properties. You know, there are different things that need to be done to make sure that the properties are attractive and functional, and and are, you know, properties are, are you know things that people actually want to give you money to live in. <laughs> If you if you if you fail to, to keep them up, then eventually people will say, "No, thank you. I'm not going to pay you to live there." <laughs> so you know, there's that. But uh, that can be applied to other things. Now, another example of productive property would be a business. Let's say you own a business. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you work on a day-to-day basis in the business as, say, some functionary in the company. You can actually be the person who owns the business, and every Thing that's going on in the business is, is being done by other people and they're working for you. But you nevertheless own the business. So 
that business is yours and it's, it's productive property and produces income for you. But that, again, doesn't mean that there's nothing for you to do. You have to m maintain a uh, sort of a ongoing, uh, you know, sort of a uh, stewardship of the business to, to keep it uh, pr pr you know, profitable. You know, you have to think about who should be running it for you. This is, again, this sort of takes you back to sort of some, some biblical material. Hmm. Like when, you know, Jesus told parables about, you know, a man who goes on a long journey and leaves his business to stewards, uh, talented men, <laughs> remember? Uh, five talents, three talents, one talent, and so forth. But there was something for the, the owner to do. He had to hold those guys accountable. He had to think a little bit about who should do what and that kind of stuff. So, and the reason I bring all that up is sometimes when we talk about productive property, the, sub, the term passive income comes up. Now, when people use the term passive income, they, they misconstrue it to mean that you're just completely passive. You know, there's nothing that you're doing. Mm. But there is no property that is, uh, you know, producing income in which you don't do anything to keep it producing income. It's sort of like the misnomer uh, when people talk about, you know, no maintenance uh, materials. Like, I have vinyl siding. I don't need to maintain it. I don't need to paint it. Well, guess what? You do need to maintain vinyl siding. You need to get power washers every <laughs> once in a while to clean that crud off of your house. In Connecticut, there are a lot of places that could use somebody's uh, <laughs> business to do that. Right, take a right. drive around. Right. So there is no such thing as maintenance-free anything, and there's no such thing as, as passive in the sense of not having to do something to maintain a, a, an asset. What people are getting at when they're talking about passive income is they're making a contrast between passive income and earned income. And these, and these are terms or categories that the, uh, thank you, okay. that the federal government, do we have separate checks there or is it just one? put it all on Yeah, we so. might want to get her to break it up. Okay. Anyway, uh, but when we talk about earned income, earned income is referring to the kind of income that you have because you're working for somebody else. And if you stop working, if you're no longer able to work, you would no longer get income. Mm. Passive income has to do with uh, income that you derive from a property that even if you're, you know, incapacitated, can still can, uh, technically or conceivably give you a living. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why uh, earned income is subject to Social Security tax, but passive income is not. Mm. So, for example, the income that I derive from my real estate uh, that I own is not subject to Social Security tax. Now, that's a pretty significant thing because most of, most folks out there in in podcast land are probably unaware of the fact that FICA, the uh, the tax that's levied that is actually kind of a social insurance. Um, is something that uh, amounts to 15% of what you earn. Now, the way this is masked in our economy today is by the fact that technically, your employer supposedly matches your your seven and a half percent contribution. Now, what's actually going on is when your employer hires you, the employer factors in the full 15%. In other words, if you if you really want to know what your employer thinks when he when he or she hires you, just add seven and a half percent. In other words, there's no contribution yeah. <laughs> that they're making. It's all income that you're producing for the business. They're just masking some of that income from you and categorizing it as your employer's contribution. Mm. It's not coming out of your employer's pocket. You're creating that kind of value that when you're an employee. And then, then your your employers just simply categorizes it as their contribution. But that's that's tied into another concept that most people don't get, and that's that companies don't pay taxes; mm. their customers pay taxes. That's it, <laughs> because the customers give the company the money to pay the taxes, and they factor the taxes into the cost of whatever they're selling it. Mm. That's exactly right. There's so many ways in which this shell game works. And there are so many ways that people kind of go along with it and want to believe, hmm. you know, certain things that just aren't true. But that, that's exactly right, Glenn. So anyway, the reason I bring all this up 
is that uh, what we want to do is, if it's, if, if it's something you can pull off, is you want to control uh, the sources of your income. And, one, and the way to do that is through ownership. And so productive property is an asset that produces income. And if you can own it, then uh, you have more control over your, your life. You have more control over your livelihood. Yeah. And as I noted earlier, it's not limited to real estate. There are all sorts of things that you can do to create productive property. So just the other day, I had a phone call from a fellow uh, from Alabama who was asking me about you know what he should do. And he said, should I get into real estate? And as I talked to him a little bit, I, I came to see that, you know, that's probably not the best choice for him. He has some abilities, uh, he has a knowledge base that would allow him to create assets that could create income for him that uh, would be much more sort of uh, based upon his interests. Now, if he were interested in, in real estate, that'd be fine, that'd be great. That'd be, I'd encourage him to pursue that as a, as a source of passive income. Uh, but uh, instead, I encouraged him to develop some things that he could own, that he could sell. In his case, it was curriculum. But you're only limited by your imagination when it comes to this thing and your opportunities. And one of the examples I love to give to sort of illustrate this is the fact that silicon, what we make computer chips from, is essentially sand. So what, what we've been able to do is take something that is just silicon. I mean, how much of it is there in the, in the world? There's just, it's like almost limitless. There's just tons of this stuff, there's zillions of tons of stuff, this stuff. But because of our creativity and our ability to envision uh, use, we've been able to, to create products with this material, silicon, that uh, are productive property. And the people who own you know, the ideas that go into making and the, and the processes that go into creating computer chips have become very wealthy using a material that's very common. So anyway, I, I bring all those subjects up, or all those examples up, to, to get across an idea that productive property is uh, accessible. And I want to sort of wrap up this little introduction with a couple of, a couple of comments. One is our ancestors uh, we're more likely to possess productive property than we are. Uh, in, let me give you a, a way of sort of to, to grasp this. Um, in 1800, and shortly after our country was founded, um, what we have is uh, you know evidence that 80% of the population owned productive property. Hmm. What I mean by that is they they were referred to as proprietors. So we had mom and pop shops which consisted of, you know, smithies or little country stores, so forth, or farms. And, and what we had in, uh, in those uh, families, in those households, are, were people who possessed the means to support themselves. They, they owned their livelihoods. Today, the numbers are reversed, even more than reversed. It's worse than that. Today, back in, back in 1800, 80% of the American population were proprietors, and less than 20% uh, were wage earners. Today, 90% uh, of the population are wage earners, and 10% uh, are proprietors. Now, there are all sorts of negative repercussions for that, of that, and we can get into that a little bit later. But uh, the other thing is that in the uh, early days of the Republic, uh, the franchise was limited to people who owned productive property. And there were a couple of reasons for this. One, if you owned productive property, you basically were freer to express your genuine beliefs. In other words, what you really thought. <laughs> uh, because no one could or it was much more difficult to control your income than it is today. That's right. So you had a, you had a lot of people who were actually expressing themselves and what yeah. they really believed. But the other part of it was, it was, it was believed that productive property was a school of virtue. Mm. It was a place where people learned certain disciplines, like you know self-control, deferred gratification, 
because if you're going to maintain a property and keep it productive, like a farm or a business or a shop or whatever, you've got to be able to plan. You've got to be, and you also have to be social. This is this is the thing that people miss. People think that if you own productive property, you'll be unsocial, but actually what it makes you is more social. You have to. Because you need to be on good terms with your neighbors. Uh, because you want to be able to sell them what you have to sell or whatever and work with other people in your community. Anyway, that's a long introduction to productive property and you guys probably have plenty to, to say at this point, so I'll let you talk. Sorry to go on so long. <laughs> well, I'll add a historical, uh, another historical dimension to this. The idea of um, property uh, ownership, uh, productive property, um, as a foundation for the franchise goes way, way back. Um, you know, the idea that there were property qualifications for voting and things like that in so many different polities. The reason is um, is really pretty simple. It has to do with the, um, the idea that, another part of it is that you have something to lose. Yes. So you are unlikely to go off on some kind of harebrained scheme or get swayed by a demagogue to go in a direction that is really unwise. You have to take into account the fact that you have something to lose. Right, right. And you know, so that was another dimension of it as well. You see that going all the way back into the uh, medieval Italian city-states, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the term, the, the term proletariat, which we now associate with Marx, is uh, derived from uh, the Latin, which was a designation in the census, the Roman census, for a freeman without property. <laughs> so a freeman without property was a very dangerous animal. Yeah, yeah. Because he was sub he was subject to the influence of the demagogue. Yeah. Right. So, but, but a person with property would be it would have some basis to say my interests are not sort of uh, at the at the mercy of this of this uh, powerful man who's making crazy promises, hmm. <laughs> and 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 you can see in a sense that that's precisely what the patricians were afraid of with Caesar. Hmm. He aligned himself with the with the landless masses, mm -hmm. with the uh, proletariat against hmm. the property owning class. Hmm. So if we want to see a revival of Republican virtue, <laughs> we need to see a revival of property ownership. And this was uh, the very thing, though, that Marx was against. Right? Sure. Oh, yeah, he thought this was, was yeah. something that, well, there were a lot of things with regard yeah. to, to <laughs> Marx, but yeah, yeah, yeah he, he wanted to, his, his ideal was, of course, to see the state become yeah. the sole owner of the means of production. In other That's words, right. property would be solely invested in the state. And somehow that meant you actually had your the ownership of the means of your... Yeah, yeah. It's, but it was so diffused, and as we yeah. know, any you know, when something is owned by everybody, it's owned by nobody. That's right. And it becomes run by... <laughs> yeah, run, yeah. Run yeah, by the... A certain by, elite that <laughs> has right. positions of power. That's right. In, inevitably. I mean, yeah, there's, there's you know, a... Just as an interesting comment on this, um, a businessman from Michigan visited the Soviet Union in the 1970s. And when he came back from the Soviet Union, he said, the Cold War is over, we won. Mm. And they said, you know, this is the 70s, nobody believes this. Yeah. And they asked him how he knew that, how can you possibly know that? Right. And his comment, it's the kind of thing that could only come from somebody who's from a rural area. Yeah. He said, there are no lights on the tractors. Huh. Mm. In other words, if you are in an area that's farming, yeah. when the crops are ready, you harvest them. You work 24-7 to get them in. Right, right. Soviet Union, yeah. you work 9 to 5 or whatever the hours were, and then you stop. Yeah. And if the crops are, ri are ripe and you need to harvest them right away, you stop at five and they rot in the fields. That's it. And he was right. I mean, because it, there's there's no motivation to no go out and do the extra work. Right, right. You know, so. And I remember stories about Romania, Shashescu, with he, they, he was coming to walk through, I guess, a certain area that was supposed to parade the bounty that Romania <laughs> produced. They actually taking wood, carving it into fruit, and painting it because their crops were so terrible. So, oh wow, wow! And you know the point here is that 
you know, the, the whole program the, the heading towards socialism or something like that is contrary to human nature. Yes. You, people work for reward. And that's another reason why productive property becomes so important because you actually can benefit much more directly from your effort than you can as a uh, W-2 employee. Right, right. This brings up a, a sort of an interesting wrinkle because I, I, I run across particularly evangelical uh, progressives, you know, sort of people who have mm -hmm. a symp sympathies for socialist ways of sort of, of, sort of organizing society. And when you bring something up like that, they use this as evidence of, the, of sort of the fall. That this, uh, this tendency, this human propensity to care about things that are sort of closer to you and not farther away from you, or this tendency to, to sort of look after your own interest is evidence of your fallen nature. You ought to have just as much interest in something halfway across the world as right next door or in your living room or you ought to have as much uh, a devotion to an ideal as you have to a physical reality on the ground. Yeah, two, two comments on that one. <laughs> uh, first of all, that's not what it says in Genesis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In Genesis, God tells Adam and Eve, tend the garden and, eat, and then you can eat the fruit of it. So basically what he was telling them is, you have the right to the fruits of your labor. Right. That's, that's Genesis 2. Okay. So, you know, the idea of, th this is the foundation for something that becomes known as the labor theory of property, uh, which is different from the labor theory of value. Labor theory of property says that when you put labor into something, you are putting something of yourself into it, and therefore you have a right to the, the, what you produce. So this is Locke. Yeah. And so the labor theory of value would be Marx. Right. Locke got it actually from medieval Franciscans, ironically enough. Yeah. Hmm. But the, the other thing about this, though, is that it ignores practical reality. The fact of the matter is, I cannot afford to be as concerned with starving people in Central Africa because I don't have enough resources to deal with that there are much more immediate, closer needs to me that I need to, I need to be addressing. Um, a uh, theologian by the name of uh, John Schneider, he used to be a Calvin, I don't know, probably still is, but uh, Schneider has this idea he calls moral proximity. He says your responsibility to people is determined by how close they are to you morally. That implies a kind of uh, human scale. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It, it's the flip side of the Catholic idea of subsidiarity. Problems right. need to be handled on as local a level as possible. Right. Yeah, but when we think about prox, uh, sort of human scale, that's an embodied mm -hmm. kind of notion or mm -hmm. sort, of, sort of way of relating to the world. Mm -hmm. So if we're dealing with abstractions, you know, you end up with this, with this sort of crazy phenomenon where you say, I love humanity in general and no one in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but you, you, you kind of see, I mean, I know, I mean, I do, I do some teaching at a, a school locally, and uh, one, one term I had uh, one of the, uh, one of the local activists in the um, very liberation wing of the Catholic community right. um, come in and teach uh, something about social justice. And he did a one-day term there. But he apparently lives in a house there that is funded by the more radical wing of the Catholics, the Doris Day wing. Sure, sure, sure. The yeah. Orbis printing that's publishing right, wing. That's right, that's right. Marrying old sisters. That's right. But, and there was an article of he, uh, him with his, his family in, in the local paper. It was talking about his kids who grew up in their home who basically opened it up to, to everyone in need and talking about the frustration the kids had because they felt neglected. Mm. So they, we, we went from being the, 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 you know, the chief concern of our parents and their care and stuff to being you know, basically one, you know, one more spoke in the same mm. wheel. Mm -hmm. and, and this is one of the things. They were opening a house to be charitable, but everyone came in the house and basically flattened the, the, the normal family order. And so everyone, it was sort of like a hippie commune with a Catholic, you know, working man's gloss. And the upsides were they valued people who worked for a living and the dignity of work and all that. But the downside was the way in which it, 
it took those created goods and those kind of bonds that are um, divinely ordained for, for achieving the kind of um, beings that we are as humans, family and, and the, the order of things towards uh, the divine order, the cosmic order for that matter. Right, right. And it just flattened it. And it made their children, in the name of this kind of eschatological picture, no different whatsoever than the care for these others, other people who just were roaming in and out. Right. And what this loses is, is at least this marvelous gift that God has made and provided where there's this one place where you can be special, mm -hmm. where you can have this special relationship with your parents uh, in the best you know, sort of, uh, you know, sort of uh, sense, uh, rather than just being another face in the crowd. This reminds me of uh, the uh, experience of Ted Williams, the, the famous baseball player for the Red Sox. <laughs> Ted Williams grew up in a, in a broken home, was, and he was raised by his mother, a single woman, who was a, a, a sort of a, a, a really active member of the Salvation Army. Ted Williams was a vehement, vehement atheist hmm. in his adult life. And there was a there was a kind of edge to his atheism that really puzzled his friends. Mm. And it was his mother that drove him to atheism. Yeah. And essentially his his take was she was out saving the world and she couldn't make dinner. Huh. That was his that was his, his assessment of his mother. Yeah. She yeah. was more concerned about some clown over there who yeah. was I know, you know, sleeping in the gutter than she was about her own children who yeah. didn't have any food on the table. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's a... Who you know, needed to go to the Salvation <laughs> <laughs> You know? That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But anyway, that, those are some great observations. Yeah. I think... Uh, go ahead. Uh, go yeah, I, I was going to move it in a bit of a different direction. Sure. Um, tying it back to some of the things we talked about before in connection with um, sphere sovereignty ideas. Mm. Uh, again, the idea of sphere sovereignty is that there are, God has designated certain areas of life that are supposed to be largely autonomous. Right. Okay. Um, family is the first of these, church, uh, government, business, uh, labor, education, you know, and each of these should be governing its own affairs. When it stops functioning properly, somebody else needs to step in and do it, but that's always going to create a bad situation. Mm -hmm. Mostly because the, the group that steps in most often is the government. Right. When the government steps in, it's overstepping its areas of competency and it tends not to really fix things. Okay, but this is true whenever any sphere interferes with another. Now, the, the challenge on productive property, I'm thinking about this on several different levels here. One of them is the fact that we are in a culture that is increasingly becoming hostile to traditional Christian moral vision. Right. When you combine that with the idea that the government has stepped very heavily into uh, the regulatory state and therefore into <coughs> control of the economy, business, labor, all of that kind of thing, that combination strikes me as being rather toxic and rather dangerous for the Christian entrepreneur. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not entirely sure how, how you, you work through the issues that are raised there, but I think that this is something that's worth at least a mention that, oh, that we need to right. consider. Yeah, there are a number of challenges that we face. One is the, the sort of government and regulatory mm -hmm. nature. The other is the fact that we're kind of fighting against giants these yeah. days, corporate world. So one of the things that distinguishes the republic that our, our nation, uh, you know, was founded to be uh, back in the, you know, the, the, the uh, 18th century and into the early 19th century, the difference between that world and the world that we know now, there are a number of differences, but a significant difference is the rise of the corporation. So a, a corporation legally is a person. But really, it's not. We all know that. It's a, it's a set of legal papers. It's a set of legal conventions. Now, when you get a, a lot of people working together 
you know, you create and, and you've got the division of labor, you've got a lot of economic uh, power generated, productive power, um, and while it's true that some families, like the Walton family, you know, of, of a Walmart fame, or the, uh, the family that owns Mars Candy, you know, they've been able to sort of bring together the old sort of understanding of, of household prop, you know, sort of ownership of productive property with the modern way in which property is held through corporate, you know, corporate uh, entities. But most of us, when we think about households, don't think about, you know, owning Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> we just think about dad's plumbing business or, you know, yeah. uh, you know whatever other enterprise maybe the family is working together on, a family farm, whatever. But that's a good thing to sort of hold up as an example. Think about the fate of the family farm. Family farms were basically run out of business, not just because corporate farms or agribusiness is so much more productive, but because of the legal structures yeah. and the regulatory structures yeah. that have been instituted in our society that have encouraged a kind of development or sort of, you know, uh, ongoing sort of growth of corporate farming over against family farming. Now, I'm sure that there are people who know a whole lot more about that particular thing than I do, but I, I do remember uh, that Wendell Berry was one of the early uh, sort of sort of voices, or you know, about this particular development and how government policy had clearly been uh, developed so as to favor corporate farming over against family farming. That's one of the reasons why family farms are kind of fighting a lose, have fought a losing battle for years, and now we're at a point where. The family farm is just sort of a sentimental thing. Yeah. No more, no more, not that many more farm aid concerts anymore. Yeah, yeah even, <laughs> even that's uh, gone the yeah, other way. Yeah, yeah, even that's sort of passe now. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, on a, on a good note, on a positive note, relating to farms, and again, I don't know a whole lot about this, but you see evidence for new forms of family farming developing. Yeah. Uh, you know, farmers markets. Uh, uh, you know, organic farming, a couple of things that are uh, giving some life to the old family farm or sort of sort of reflecting the life of the old family farm in new forms. But uh, there's a challenge, I think, to this whole matter of, of, of holding productive property. And, I, and as anyone who's read my book, Man of the House, knows, I'm a big advocate for households holding productive property and using productive property as a way to sort of integrate the interests of the household. So today, what we, one of the reasons why households are as fragile as they are is the, is the fact that men and women, for example, uh, pursue different careers and they're being, you know, it's because of their employer, employment, their, uh, their lives are, are, you know, on a daily basis divided, they're yeah. separated from each other. Whereas in the old days, because they held property in common, uh, they, they worked together on the family concern. They were working together on an ongoing basis. Now, obviously, not every you know, marriage is a happy marriage, and, and not every relationship is easy. <laughs> but very often, people found ways to work with each other. They understood each other's strengths and weaknesses and just kind of accommodated each other and worked, found ways to make it happen, make it work. But today what we have is all the forces are encouraging us to sort of reduce our households to just places where you go and crash at the end of the day yeah. and recreate. And where you do a productive things is someplace else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm an advocate of uh, owning productive property and holding it in common as a family. And this is, uh, in my mind, a way to sort of strengthen the bond of husband and wife, parents to children, generations, and so forth, because everybody has a common interest. Um, I don't know if that inspires any thoughts or well, I mean, I think one of the things that's, that it, it, it does in, in terms of, of trying to um, 
you know, move people in that direction. I think one of the hard parts is the hurdles, and especially if your gifts are different and you're, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm more on the academic side, so I don't have a lot of skills in the side that can create certain kinds of, you know, productive properties. Um, my wife is a very, she's, uh, works in therapy, but she's much more entrepreneurial than I am. Um, so when trying to conceive of trying to develop things like that, we can probably come up with a lot of good ideas, but then, then having to take the energy to move away from the 40-hour-plus yeah. week right, right. And, and, and put our energy there, our focus there, develop that while still trying to maintain the base. I mean, it's one thing if somebody has the resources to invest in that or knows how to do it, mm -hmm. but a lot of people, like myself, we wouldn't know how to shift from here to here so that's why that kind of right. that kind of, I mean it's a it's it's a great ideal but without those steps from our particular determinations it's hard to yeah. and I think that would be the that would be the kind of you know question I would have is you know how could it become so particular that it could help people like you know in the strange situation well, yeah, where I don't even yeah. think I'm that strange I think no, I'm kind I think of you're very, very common. common I think it's very yeah. common yeah. how to get it as um, an academic I will agree agree yeah, it's, right. it's very hard to think like that even though we you know I understand wholly that you know in, in, in my life and I've always talked about that matter mm -hmm. of fact we'd love to be able to combine all the things that we even do and make it one thing that, that serves both the house right. and even you know the church and then the larger world. Let me, let me, let me make a suggestion. Uh, this is something that I, that's, because I, I do think that we need to sort of deal with the, you know, the realities on the ground, you know, not just ideals, mm -hmm. not just look back in the past in a romantic way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we need to sort of just look at, okay, this is the situation we face. We, we live in a world that is ordered around corporations, largely. And then the uh, welfare state, which we've critiqued in, er in an earlier podcast, is something that is taking up the social welfare functions of the household mm -hmm. that have been lost. Mm -hmm. and, and, re and real quick, just so in it, even in academic, the, it has become such that this sort of professionalization detached from what used to be household church and so reintegrating the, the educational vision into those contexts is part of what you're up to. Yeah, and, yeah. and we have some very positive developments. Obviously, the homeschooling movement yeah, is yeah. one. I think some of the things that have to do with, uh, par you know, this sounds weird, but stuff that has to do with, like, uh, end-of-life yeah. uh, matters, you know, uh, hospice care, those yeah. kinds of things, bringing people back home. Yeah. These are positive developments. Yeah. Um, but I think that we, we do have to realize or sort of accept the fact that we're going to need to have hybrids, yeah. things that sort of help us get through kind of an un, un, imperfect world, yeah. but try to integrate it and, and sort of bring together some things that are maybe unique and new. Mm -hmm. So here's a concept that I've had that we've, we've instituted in our household in almost kind of a uh, haphazard and accidental way. And I call it the Skunk Works household. <laughs> what I mean by that is in the Skunk Works household, what every member of the household, parents, children, whatever, you know, members of the household, grandparents, so forth, there are certain sort of uh, very sort of personal and sort of particular interests. So in our household, my wife is a piano teacher. I'm a pastor. I'm also a writer. Um, our children, our oldest son is a music producer. Our second son is a welder and a, a fabricator and a steel worker. Our daughter is a baker and an historian. Okay, so we've got all this weird mix. <laughs> we seem to be going in every yeah, direction imaginable. Yeah. But what holds it all together? Well, obviously there's love and da-da-da-da-da, you know, all the stuff that you hear about all the time. But there's also a, a certain uh, kind of framework in which common things include insurance, uh, a place to live, yeah. access to the internet, yeah. oh, that's right. <laughs> you know, sort of structural, functional things yeah. that we share in common that bind us together. You know, Sunday dinner yeah. when we're all yeah. at the table, you know, sort of the routines. Yeah. 
And then, obviously, the, the affection that we have for each other and the support that we give to each other in our various pursuits. But that common thing, those common things, constitute the glue of the household. You know, so the fact that uh, our children are all a part of the same, with the exception of my son, because he's 20 over, you know, he's, he's reached the limit where the government is mandated he must have his own plan. Yeah. <laughs> We'd be happy to have him continue in our plan if the government didn't do force us to yeah. separate at that point. But, but what, what that does is that provides this sort of basis, this household basis of... Sh now, and we also share some, some common long-term assets. So we own real estate, for example. And the children all understand that they have a vested interest in the welfare of that real estate, you know, so that it's, pros it's prosperity. For one thing, it's going to provide for my wife and I in our old age, but they also know that beyond that, they're going to own it someday. So, uh, you know, I just had a conversation with my, my second son the other day about, you know, the future for him, and he's interested in buying a house. And so he's been looking at really beat-up fixer-uppers, and I said, you know, hey, we looked at a house that I had a personal interest in. It's a bungalow built in 1928, kind of a cool house. And I said, you know, if you want to buy that, I showed it to him and his girlfriend, if you want to buy that, I'd be interested in going in on it with you. And here's why. I could see that this would be a place for you and your new wife you know, to live for maybe three years or so. And then when you're ready for your next property, you know, we could buy you out. And then my wife and I would move into it yeah. as kind of as a part of our downsizing strategy. We take the house we currently live in and rent it out to some executive at Travelers yeah. <laughs> or someplace like that. <laughs> and some academic. But you see, this this whole process is is a way to sort of integrate the modern world where everybody is pursuing their personal vision. But at the same time, there are certain common interests that bind us together yeah. and keep us. We've even talked about buying, as a family, a uh, cabin in Vermont yeah. Yeah. so that we could all own it in common yeah. and that any one of us, you know, any... Kind of your own timeshare. That's right. Any branch of the family <laughs> can go up there. There'll be some weeks yeah. where we're all there. There's yeah. some weeks where you're just there yeah, and that kind sure. of thing. So I, I think we just have to be realistic about, you know, the situation on the ground. Yeah. And I kind of feel like we need to go back in a time machine to, to 1830. But, and I think what, I mean, you bring something interesting up, and I think for, you know, someone like myself who has, I can come up with the ideas. I can't come out with the practical steps always to, I mean, it's always, okay, we'll get to this when we can get to it, rather than knowing, you know, how in the world could I reshift even patterns now to start having imagination to conceive of being able to do things that took steps to, to that. I mean, I, you know, for one, I mean, I, there's one thing, I've, I always joke around with people, especially after a few beers, but one of the things I've always loved <laughs> is wanted to have my own, uh, create a, a, a beer. I know there is a million of them out there, right. so in a, in a sense, but my interest isn't trying to compete with the million. But it's trying to have a, a world and, and a community in which you actually you have enough where it's it's not it's not my sole sustenance, but it's actually a part of that. Yeah, you yeah. take a craft, you you put your energy into it. You have a community that, or you grow a community that's interested in it, and so it gives you enough of a return to be similar to like a rental property on at that matter, and you're able to invest a certain gift and in, in energy into it, and it could become something that pulls. A household together because the imagine, you know, the different imaginations involved. You know, you know, I know people that are creative on the artistic level. They'd want to make the the glass, the bottle, the, right, you know. Right. And so I can come up with the idea, but it's really that that risk faith factor of of stepping into it and saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna actually do this. And I yeah, think that that's yeah. that place where a lot of us are. I know well, I am. What? But I, but I think this is this is this is a very rich yeah. sort of. Sort of the thing to, to get into because I believe that uh, what we need is not a return to the past, nor is it sort of like a, a, the atomization of our world where we're all sort of just servile and yeah. you know, dependent upon the welfare state and serving sure. some corporation. What we need is a kind of new thing, which is an integration of the best of both. Yeah. What the 
modern world has given us is global markets. Yeah. And uh, we need to be thankful for the internet. We need to be thankful yeah. for Amazon. Yeah. You know, forgive me for saying that. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. you could probably eat whatever you well, make. You could, right. Yeah. yeah um, Brendan uh, has been typing some comments in. I think yeah, please, Brendan, go ahead and <coughs> jump in. So um, the two things, really, that have popped into my mind. First is... Um, we have lost the idea of creative work. Not in the sense of like, oh, I've come up with a new idea, but in actually making objects. Right. Now, that has started making a comeback actually recently. Sorry, I'm loud, I know. Oh. Um, uh, <laughs> um, because um, uh, through websites, namely Etsy and Patreon. Mm, um, yes, right. These two right. websites are used to basically, Patreon is uh, hmm. sort of a subscription-based. It's kind of subscription-based because it's based on how much does the person who you are Patreoning, who are you are being a patron for? How much do they make, right? Mm. So if they come out with something, then you, then your whatever you much you disagged and they like like ten dollars a month or whatever, that gets sent to them, and you get rewards for that. You get early access, whatever. Um, Etsy, it's basically like eBay, but with stuff that you make, you know. So these things are you know part of that global market that you're talking about, um, right? You know, right. Um, and. I don't want to go too off topic. The other thing that popped in my head, though, was like, well, what about entertainment? You know, mm. entertainment has such a—it's right now more than ever. It's so much based on the internet, Netflix, yeah. Hulu. Right. I, I mean, work you in can the stream. Yeah. Yeah, streaming. I work YouTube. in the t YouTube. Yeah, I work in the I work in the TV industry. I'm a I'm, people don't know this. I'm a video editor for right. a local news station um, out where I live. And but TV's dying. Like, mm. TV is going to die at some point. Mm. Right, right. And so this internet is going to really, you know, push that forward and stuff. Right. But that reminds me of a particular episode of Star Trek, of all things. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned Star Trek. Another, another Star podcast. Trek finds a way of showing <laughs> up in every episode. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, remember that episode where they, they, they you know, there's always this, like, uh, like in Star Trek, there's this recurring thing of, like, you know, parallel worlds, you know, yeah. where, like, everything is, like, you know what it is in the 20th century with this one little wrinkle. <laughs> so there's this particular episode where they go to a to an sort of alternative Earth that never had Christianity emerge, and there's they, they arrive at this planet and they and they see this these images being televised into space of a gladiatorial contest. And what they discover when they actually go into that world is Christianity doesn't emerge until the 20th century uh. in that world. But they, but they have television. <laughs> and in that particular episode, you know, Kirk is like, what's television? <laughs> <laughs> and no, I think it's Uhura uh, yeah. or like, you know, Spock. I said, that was something from the 20th century. <laughs> <laughs> so, so your, your point about that. television being passe, you know, is kind of yeah. kind of it was anticipated by Star Trek, but uh, what but, wasn't anticipated by Star <laughs> Trek? That's true. Yeah. Star Trek is our our template for That's reality. Right. <laughs> but but I, I appreciate what you what you've brought up the, the, these platforms. You know, there's a kind of, uh, and we've noted this in other podcasts or podcasts, is that there's always, with any new development, there's an upside and downside. The upside of Patreon or Etsy, of course, is the capacity for people to craft, uh, you know, new content or new products and, dis and distribute them without, you know, some sort of middleman. Well, there is a middleman, obviously, as Patreon or Etsy, but but it's a different sort of middleman, and 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 it's a it's a middleman that sort of recedes into the background. You know, in, in the past, the 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 middlemen were more or less the only thing you were aware of, or or, or felt like you were aware of, and you had to deal with them. But with the new models, there's a there's a more direct access to the creator. And I think that's a great thing. I think uh, when it comes to the development of productive property, I think what we need to find ways to do is sort of encourage, like when we're, you know, when, when Tom was sharing about, you know, his, the situation that he's in, how, you know, he and his wife uh, are in kind of different career tra trajectories, you know. Yeah. Uh, how they struggle with the question of how do we hold it all together? What do we have in common? Mm 
there needs to be uh, some good thinking and some models developed where we're able to to uh, help people hold it, hold things together because I do think that the nature of the modern economy uh, tends to dissipate or sort of atomize us and send us in different directions. Mm -hmm. But if we can sort of re-envision the household as kind of a, 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 a sort of an entity that can hold property, but also hold people together who maybe are pursuing... So, you know, you, you have these critiques of the mm -hmm. medieval world which, you know, usually go along this line. You know, back in those benighted days, <laughs> A cobbler's son was a cobbler himself. It wasn't a shame that he <laughs> didn't have a choice like we have today <laughs> to go into some other productive enterprise. <laughs> Aside be... from the fact that it isn't true about the <laughs> Middle Ages, right. uh, but, but yeah, I get your point. I mean, right, right. You know, the, actually, you know, in, in your case, something that you might want to think about, which mm -hmm. I am also thinking about, yeah is uh, curricula. Yes. As he, uh, you know, as he said, there, there are people who, you know, the guy from Alabama he talked to, yeah. um, he mentioned at the beginning of, of the show, his, his thing is going to be developing curricula. Yeah, I was actually just thinking. And, <laughs> and one, yeah. one of the interesting things, now, thinking creatively, yeah. your wife's got a really different skill set than you yeah. do. She's working in, in different, totally, it seems, totally different kinds of areas, yeah. but I can see ways that they touch. That's right. And yeah, that's right. that's the point at which things get really interesting, where you can think creatively. All right, how do yeah. we combine these two things? Let's say we want to do curricula. How do we combine them? How do we make that happen? And I think they, especially in the, in the world of, of Christianity and theology, is that, for example, what she does, family uh, and marriage, marriage and, and family counseling, they are underdetermined by good theological yes compliments. And so you, you tend to either have one that just puts the sole emphasis on technique, but it, it will have a sort of Christian moral framework. But theology isn't really determining a lot of the, the, the evaluation of the technique. Yeah, right, and, right. And, and by the same token, yeah. theology is frequently so abstract That's right. and disconnected from real life That's that... That it doesn't come, come into right. the And so the I, I can see some really incredible yeah. synergies coming out of that. Coming kind of that, yeah. That's, and that's, and that's, my, you know, that's, that's an example for you, but yeah. I think that this is probably true for more people, that if they think creatively about what the gift sets, interests, all of that sort of thing are yeah. between the husband and wife, there might be some really yeah. interesting creative kinds of opportunities yeah. that could emerge from that. Yeah, and I think yeah. this is a beautiful way to sort of revive the, our, our sort of understanding of the Christian household. Mm -hmm. yeah. Who else in the world seems to sort of sort of have this ideal yeah. of integration? You know, yeah. uh, you know, the household as being a way of sort of pulling people together. If, if, if the household is a way of, of pulling people together in a way that's not restraining on their giftedness. Mm -hmm. And that's the critique sure, yeah. that people who look at, you know, earlier forms of the household yeah. or early expressions of the household, you know, dismiss. Yeah, it was more just survival then well, yeah. know, often uh, than all right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm at least partially a medieval historian. <laughs> I don't think people actually appreciate what was going on in those households. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, so the husband was primarily responsible for production with the help of apprentices and the children. Yes. The wife typically was responsible for running the household, but also sales, and when things were slow, helping her husband in production. Yes, right. So there's actually a massive range of skills that the women had oh, yeah. that they were engaged in. Actually, more skills in terms of, of range. They were typically doing more things than the men were. Right, and right. their children had the option when they, they didn't necessarily, well, they were never raised in their own household. They were always, in a sense, fostered out or sent out as apprentices yeah. to... Yeah either another cobbler or whatever, right. or if possible, to someone a little bit higher up on the, on the food chain. Right. Um, all the boys were, and frequently the girls were as well, and if not, they were sent off to work in an upper-class household to learn basal, basic household management stuff. Right. I mean, it was a very, very yeah. 
complex, integrated Sure. You know, there, were, there, were, there were a lot of things going on that were very interesting mm -hmm. and very satisfying. And so like when we think about you know, the household and you know, the, in antiquity and in the medieval world, there is this uh, modern construal, this, this sort of filter that is uh, introduced that just makes everything distorted. It distorts yeah. everything. Right. In um, the, you know, you, like, you know, like I, I, I've noted earlier my, in my reading of, Zen, of Xenophon, you know, his, how, his, his, his work on uh, the household manager or the estate manager, in which, you know, what we have there is we have Socrates uh, in, encountering a, uh, two people, one who's a failed uh, you know, head of house and another one who's a successful head of house. And what's the distinction between the two? That's, that's the thing that Socrates is looking at in the dialogue. And what, what we see in the, in the successful head of house is a very humane and very uh, proactive approach to working with his servants and working with his wife. Mm. And when you look at it in, I think, the proper way, what you, dis what you discover is that the, the wife of this householder in this, in this work, the estate manager, is a very rich and satisfying life. She's involved in everything in, in terms of the household's work. Not only the sort of things that are going on in terms of food preparation and so forth, that's actually a very minor dimension of her work. She's involved with, you know, every aspect of the household's flourishing, its mm -hmm. success, its relationship to the community, its, its sort of how she manages the servants. Because this particular house is being described as a fairly significant enterprise. Mm. So in today's world, if we were to describe what this woman was up to, we'd say that she was a vice president in a medium-sized corporation. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville makes the same observation about women in America. So one of the reasons why America is so successful is the women. Yes. And yes. their role in the household and all that, which was radically different from Europe, but it's essentially the same concept. Well, it's, right. and it's interesting. I, I know just on a, a per, you know, it's a personal story is my grandmother was um, her. her both her parents' families were from Finland, and um, and my grand my great grandmother was uh, from Finland, and so my grandmother is one of eleven children, and my my great grandparents, my great grandfather ended up uh, dying young, and they he worked in mines, and he he had an accident, and he died. So my great grandmother raising eleven children. Actually, she had thirteen. Two were still back in Finland, but with aunts, they remain there. Right, raising right. those eleven children on a farm that could, you know, keep it going, but um, not knowing any English in the United States. Wow. Of course, her, she had relatives around, but it, it's still it's very hard. Well, my grandmother, very young, one of the older, not the oldest, but one of the older of the children, had to go work. In, in basically affluent houses um, doing, she basically worked as um, kind of more basically a servant in a way, cleaning yeah, houses. Right, right. But one of the things she had to do is work in the kitchen and work in, the, in those houses. Not only did she learn how to elevate the household working in those, like Rockefeller type, yeah. she learned the arts. She, she grew to be one of the greatest connoisseurs of art, classical, all, all these high arts. Yeah. But she became a fantastic cook because she learned from the cooks in the kitchen. Yes, right. So here right. she was. She brought that back into her household. And, and then my, my grandfather, both of whom, his parents were from Finland, um, he, he, was, he owned a meat store. He had his own little meat property. But the, together, those two built a house sort of around the aesthetic of food and the arts. Mm. And so my mother grew up in this atmosphere of, of all of this cultivation that was given to them not merely because of their, their own household, but even some of the struggles their household went through. They were yes. placed in other households, but they brought back those things back into their own and created a, a whole different world right, into right. which, you know, my mother and, and all of us have, have valued that, that, that right. kind of the different arts in a different way because of that. Well, we should probably wrap things up here. <laughs> and one of the things that occurs to me as we wrap things up is that uh, so often in sort of mainstream evangelicalism, when you talk about households, people are completely out to lunch. They immediately talk, refer to white picket fences 
and nineteen and white privilege. Yeah, and white privilege <laughs> and nineteen fifties television shows. <laughs> they have no idea about any of this stuff. In fact, you know, with my books, one of the things that's occurred is uh, I can see from the from the the reviews that people write is that what I'm introducing them to is brand new. They had no clue that these things were true. They have been indoctrinated into a kind of modern corporate welfare state feminist BS. Yeah. Put it frankly. <laughs> and they have no idea what their what even their mothers and grandmothers and great grandmothers were able to do in those places. How fulfilling their lives were. Um, they assumed because they weren't in the history books that yeah. they were just chattel, that they were slaves. It's not so. They had a range of things that they were involved with that which were interesting, that demanded their creativity and, and were rewarding. Anyway, that's my final thought. Do you have anything to add, uh, Glenn? Um, yeah, just one note. Um, with the advent of the internet, it just I want to reinforce this, the potential for generating productive property has just gone through the roof. There, there is, a, you know, we don't have to think about making a, you know, being a, a steel worker or, you know, making knives, making, you know, whatever, or owning real estate. There's plenty of room for entrepreneurial stuff on the internet. You just have to think creatively and figure out, you know, get some coaching to figure out how to make it work. But that, that's a great place to start because there's tons of opportunity there. Right, I agree completely. Anything, Tom, you want well, to Well, for me, it's fascinating, and I think, you know, there, there are a lot of ideas I've had for a long time, and I know a lot of other people have, to try to make this kind of thing happen. And they see how important it is, significant, into creating that, that you know, a, a certain place to flourish in a way, I think, that we're created to do, especially as families. Um, and not always feel like, yeah, the household is merely just kind of the place you go and rest and, and you know, get a few hours sleep before you go and exhaust yourself for some other end and <laughs> purpose. Right, and, right, right. and not that, that those things are meaningless, but they, they, they really kind of drain the life out of some of the dignity of the gift of family life and, and uh, com you know, in community and, and, I think, fuller senses. So, no, this is very important. I still need an imagination for it because I think, you know, the, the world has changed even since I was young. Um, in ways that it's harder to know how to realize sometimes, but I think it's important to start, start, you know, drawing lines that help give definition to what this could look like. Right. Well, anyway, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We don't take you for granted at all. We appreciate the fact that you've taken some time out of your day. You want to mention a Kickstarter? Well, yeah, Tom is encouraging me to talk about something. Uh, we were thinking about and have been talking about for some time developing a uh, online presence for classes. And uh, that will require some, uh, you know, uh, investment. So imagine, if you will, uh, an ability to take a class with, with Tom Price uh, on the subject of classical theism. What else you want to want to take a class with Tom on, and uh, be be uh, you know involved with the class in in a way that would allow you to actually ask questions in real time with other students who are physically present in the class. We've been talking about uh, developing a quote virtual classroom, and this would require some uh, in, you know techno technical uh, investment uh, investment in the means by which it could actually occur. So we've, we've, we've had a successful Kickstarter campaign that allowed us to purchase new recording equipment, and we were encouraged by that. And since that time, our audience has continued to grow. And uh, we've had people interacting with us almost on a weekly basis, or a daily basis, I should say, about the, po the podcast, and, uh, and we've been encouraged by that. So we, we, we thought that it would be a good idea, maybe as our next project, or next uh, sort of step in the development of our of our program here to create this virtual classroom 
and it would require, as I noted earlier, an investment. So we've been talking about doing another Kickstarter, which would allow us to raise the funds, the capital, to make it happen. We don't, we haven't gotten very far yet in our thinking on it. It's just an idea, and we know that uh, it would be great if people would be out, you know, willing to help us out on it. So we just wanted to give it a heads up on it. And I appreciate Tom reminding me about that as we're wrapping things up. So uh, just make note of that. And if, if, if that interests you in some way, uh, please let us know. Uh, it would be encouraging to us so that uh, we would uh, feel, you know, uh, motivated to move on with the idea. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. We, as I noted earlier, we do appreciate your support and your, your interest in what we do. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.